this is the Stand Alone Podcast. My experience of the estrangement has been that a certain narrative develops within the family that is still in contact, my ex-wife, my three children. And if you push against that narrative, you get a, a strong pushback. My name's Jay, and I'm producing this podcast series for Standalone UK, supporting estranged adults in everyday life. You go from a situation where you believe your relationship with your children is made from reinforced concrete, but in the end, you realise that it's made from a house of cards and can quite easily get knocked down. Across these episodes, 10 participants who have very kindly offered to share their experiences of family estrangement. I believe that you're, if, you, if you have even minimal contact with your children, or at least if you're trying to have contact with them, they can begin to understand that you are moving beyond the situation. And then that becomes something of a choice for your children as well. Because although I think the children can feel very much in control of the situation up until that point. No two experiences of estrangement are the same. But hopefully throughout this podcast series, you'll hear useful ideas to take away, whether they're similar journeys or contrasting opinions. The presence or not of your children in your life must not become a deciding factor about your happiness. When you've finished grieving, you start to to step back. It sounds terribly hard, terribly brutal, but estrangement is a brutal situation. We frequently have an expectation that we're, we're meant to be happy all the time, but that's not realistic. It's okay to be unhappy. It's okay to be sad. You know, estrangement is a very sad thing. You have to let yourself be sad. It's just that you cannot let it take over your life. So you were walking the dog earlier? Yes, yeah, yeah. You were saying that it was flooded. It's been raining very hard over the last few weeks here. So the lake acts as a big water sink. So it takes all the extra water. It floods a little bit, but it only affects the sort of millionaires' houses around the lake, which is fine. Nobody cares too much about that. If they can afford those houses, they can sort out the flooding afterwards. So. This is David. When we spoke, he'd just returned from a rainy walk with his dog, who you might hear the occasional time barking in the background. David lives in northern Italy, where apparently it can get as wet as it can over here in the UK. When I think of Italy, I don't typically think of big floods. I think beautiful, warm place. Well, funnily enough, the area I live in, it has the same rainfall as Cork in Ireland. Really? So you can imagine it's quite wet. Yeah, but it's all concentrated into a couple of months of the year and then we have long sunny summers and long blue sky winters so it's, it's not too bad how long have you been living there for on april the first it will be 30 years i absolutely love it i i wouldn't want to live anywhere else what is it about northern italy that that you love having a job that i enjoy that pays well the mountains nearby i i once my kids started to grow up I got into mountaineering and, uh, and rock climbing and ice climbing. 
and I have the mountains close by. So every weekend, uh, myself and my climbing partner are up in the mountains, either rock climbing in the summer or mountaineering, and in the winter, ice climbing. So it's for me, it's perfect. It's uh, a great combination of work and uh, and private life. David's experience of estrangement from his three children began when he started the process of separating from his now former wife, the mother of his three children. I took my role as a parent extremely seriously. I, I suppose I was omnipresent in my, uh, in my kids' lives as they grew up. I absolutely hid my unhappiness from both the children and to a large extent from their mother as well. So when I finally left my wife, it was a real shock, let's say, to, uh, to everyone. You know, it was a real upheaval of what for the children had been extremely stable and conventional upbringing. I, I beat myself up about the way I did it for, for quite a while. You know, I just sort of walked into the house one day and said, this is it, you know, completely out of the blue. It was quite dramatic for my ex-wife. It was. It must have been very hard for her. And it was equally sort of dramatic and, and sort of earth-shattering for the children as well. So they were very upset about the whole thing. I certainly, right from the start, did my absolute best not to, not to involve them in any of the details. They took a supportive position towards their mother and that... Uh, evolved very quickly into a detaching themselves uh, from me. They weren't really children anymore. They were they were young adults at the moment of the separation. The youngest was 21, 22. He's a boy. And the two girls were, at the moment of the separation, say 24 and 26 or 27. So they were all independent. If they were still dependent on the family unit, I don't think I ever would have been able to do what I did. But, you know, in doing that, of course, there were consequences for them because they had no idea that I was so uh, so unhappy. So it made the shock and the trauma for them even more strong. The situation quite quickly degenerated into an estrangement. And I spent fully four years almost completely estranged from my two daughters and my son, only really reconnected with my daughters uh, a year ago. And that has been slowly developing over the year into a better, more, let's say, solid relationship. And I'm still basically, to all intents and purposes, estranged from my son. You know, I've tried uh, again and again for a, a reconnection with him, but... I've come to the conclusion that now it doesn't really matter what I say or do. It will depend on when he feels ready or not. Other than, you know, occasionally reminding him that I'm here, uh, there's nothing more I have to add. He probably sees himself as the last person punishing me for the treatment of his mother and so is probably reluctant to let go of it, let's say. Because with my ex-wife, you know, we are now uh, finally after after a four-year struggle, we're divorced. It's all been settled. 
there's no remaining issues from a point of view of the financial relationship or whatever with my ex-wife. We, we, we found solutions and, and closed the issue uh, successfully. So my daughters have now started to raise the issue a little bit with me. And, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably clear with them. And, uh, you know, I say to them, unless my son and I begin to talk, we sort of sit down and clarify things between each other. We're never really going to truly understand where the other is coming from. I've done my best that I can do in emails, in letters and whatever to my son, but uh, none of it has really worked. So this is a first for the standalone podcast series. You'll have heard that whilst David is still not in communication with his youngest child, a connection has been reformed with his two daughters. Whilst standalone don't advocate that reconciliation is always achievable, nor the most healthy outcome for many people, I was interested to find out more about how David reformed connections with his daughters. Yeah, I just wanted to say to you that years of therapy on this issue, I, I sometimes get emotional about it, but I can get it under control, it'll pass, and there's no residual worry there, so you don't need to be worried. If I get choked up, I'll just... I'll work through it and um, it should be fine. Most adults, whether they have any trauma in their lives or not, could benefit from therapy. (laughs) Difficult, because you have to be brutally honest with yourself to get any any real benefit out of it, and that's not always easy. But I, I found it incredibly rewarding and incredibly helpful, for sure. Of course, depending on your therapist, but the way I was living my life, there was whole areas of the way I was living that I didn't question. I just ignored or tried not to think about. And, you know, as your therapy evolves, your therapist can take you into those areas that sometimes aren't easy to face or to, you know, to be really honest with yourself about. Uh, let's say I didn't want to live anymore the way I had lived before. I, I wanted to to get a better feel for for me as a as a person, I suppose. And in the end, uh, therapy did that for me. If you've listened to any of the previous episodes of the Standalone Podcast, you'll know that we've been trying to find links and commonalities between the experiences. One of the things that I hadn't realised when I started making this series with Standalone, and perhaps in hindsight it's rather obvious, is that Almost everyone that I spoke to across this series has accessed therapy or counselling at some point during their journey and look back on that experience in a positive light. I actually went to therapy and my therapist was really good. I recommend therapy for everyone. If you can afford it or if you can stand to be on the waiting list, I strongly recommend therapy. It's the best seven months of a lot of money that I I, I ever spent. Therapy helped me to get back that sense that actually I was good enough. I'm not a bad person. You know, this is very, very sad, but maybe it's not to do with me. Maybe it's to do with something else. And then when you've reached that point, really, there is, you've got to just sort it out for yourself, I think. I eventually did go and see a therapist. And after about two years, I started to feel well and I started to have more clarity One of the most important things I took out of my therapy was being able to recognise why I felt particular emotions and what that related to and 
trying to listen to my body and listen to the way I was feeling and, and just be kinder to myself. I've had counselling over this and my counsellor at the time said, crikey, Sarah, I'm surprised I didn't see you years ago. You've done so much work on yourself, you know, and you've managed to sort a lot of it yourself. She helped enormously. Initially, I found it just somebody to, to talk at, really, rather than my poor husband and friends. Or the men at the bus stop. Yeah, <laughs> anybody. And she has helped me, but I haven't been for a long time because I reached a point where there is nothing anyone can say. We should view a therapist like we do a plumber or an electrician. You know, you pay them to help you. So if, it's, if it works for you, uh, great. If it's not working for you, if it's making you miserable, then, then stop it and look for somebody else. It's a bit of a long road. You can't oversimplify therapy and you, you have to have a sort of a long-term view of this. But certainly I found it incredibly helpful. I think everyone should have a counsellor. <laughs> I think we should all have therapy on a regular basis because you don't realise the, the day-to-day things that you deal with and issues that you deal with. You don't realise the kind of toll they can take on you, both mentally and physically. It took me a long time to come to the conclusion that that was the kind of help I needed. I think when I found that I didn't want to talk to my partner about what I was going through and when I still felt like I couldn't really open up to my friends about what I was going through, I did really feel at a loss and bottling it up wasn't doing me any good at all. I really didn't know how to deal with this new dynamic of of not having a family essentially and feeling quite isolated and alone. I just realised that I was just sad, constantly sad, all the time. I was struggling to concentrate in work. I was struggling to get up in the mornings. Then I started to realise, okay, this needs acknowledging and I need to do something about it. And the downside is, as we're all aware of, there's a bit of a a waiting list for counsellors if you go through the NHS, obviously. But it's worth the wait to just be on that list and start that process and and know that you are going to be getting help. The counsellor I had was amazing and she helped shift my perspective on the whole situation and she said things to me which really resonated with me and put things into perspective really and it really did help to have that neutral third person view of, of the whole situation. Do you find that that's something that most people have done or or do you ever find that there are people who are resistant to going through formal therapy? I think it really depends on the person Mm -hmm. and it depends on a few factors too. So some people feel very uncomfortable with the idea of sharing very personal aspects of their lives with a complete stranger, whereas other people find that very healing. Mm. And I think our recent research paper has shown that some people really want very direct advice and they want to be told what to do and almost given a formula for how to make this better. Whereas other people want to just discuss it for hours and really process it and become more comfortable with their own feelings. And this is the founder and CEO of the standalone charity, Becca Bland. You'll hear her voice throughout the episodes too. As well as a range of online resources, standalone work with counsellors in some locations across the breadth of the UK to host support groups, a space for people to get together to talk openly about their experiences and their estrangement. So there's two very different needs within the community. 
and predominantly people who have been left behind, so disowned, may want more productive ways of fixing a situation. Yeah. Particularly parents who've become estranged from a child or a grandchild, we find. They really want pointed advice and discussing things for hours perhaps isn't quite what is useful for them. However, people who've been through quite traumatic and abusive, difficult situations with family may find talking about things so useful, and especially to someone that accepts, understands, and helps them to come to terms with it. So that being said, I think that counselling can be very, very helpful, and support can be very, very helpful for some people, whereas for others they might find it very frustrating. For some people, things like CBT might be very helpful. That's cognitive behavioural therapy. Yes. Yeah. And it's where you become more goal-based around your healing. I went to a CBT person for the type of person that I am. So I'm a high-achieving type A personality type. Going to CBT, I think you can't just go at any time. Like, that's not the way therapy works. You have to go to therapy when, when you acknowledge that there's something that maybe you want to change like and you're thinking okay I'm in a place where I need to kind of look at my inside and think okay there's something that's not right and you have to be in that space to be open to hearing because it's awful like you hear some really really horrible things sometimes like you hear you hear how actually some things were your fault because you have to learn to take responsibility for your actions and accept the consequences. Like that's, that's part of the process. She worked with me to unpack everything. Uh, I'm really interested in this because it's something I've never come across before, but it seems more like, more like returning to school in a way. It is a little bit. It's kind of that you do get homework (laughs) and you do make progress towards your goals. And obviously the therapist or the psychologist who works with you helps you to set those goals can be quite clinical in a way Mm. it isn't much around talking around things but more around movement towards a certain point that is desirable and this this paper that you're talking about is is that paper available online yes it is yeah and i can put it in the show notes oh lovely oh i forget we have the show notes that's great (laughs) so if you take a look down in the podcast app that you're listening on now you're to see all kinds of useful info places to go key things discussed in the episode yes And that paper definitely talks about a huge number of different experiences and perspectives. I think the main thing that people really found as a result of that research is that no one wants people to tell them what to do Mm. in terms of no one wants to tell them to reconcile if they don't want to reconcile or to not reconcile if they do want to reconcile. So very, very pointed and what could be perceived as judgmental advice is not not very helpful for people. A therapist doesn't always work for you. I have friends who've found starting therapy a miserable experience and have changed therapists and it has become much more rewarding for them. So, uh, you know, you have to be open, I think. That's what I'd like to say really about therapy. You know, if it's not working for you, you have to be prepared to change. You said that you wanted to do the therapy in order to understand the reasons why you were living like you were. What do you mean by living like you were in this instance? Well, I think over years I had sort of developed a sort of way of living my life in compartments. In one compartment, I was a father to my children. And in another compartment, I was a husband and of course, there were other compartments that I wasn't uh, that I wasn't so happy about. You know, I, 
seeing somebody in the end outside of my marriage. I, I developed this way of living that kept everything, all parts of my life as separate entities. It just wasn't working, you know, it was making me miserable. I wasn't able to, to live my life as a sort of a, a single entity, my life, you know, this is it. I started therapy shortly after I separated from my ex-wife. The therapy very quickly developed into focusing on the estrangement from my children because that sort of became for a long time the, the sort of central theme of my life after separation trying to adapt to the estrangement, trying to learn to cope with it, I suppose. I'm certainly aware that my relationship with my children has changed with the two girls that I'm reconnecting with. The relationship is certainly different than it was before. Will it ever be the same as it was before the estrangement? I don't think so. It can become strong, but it will always be different, I think. Sometimes reconciliation and coming back together after an estrangement is a great opportunity to start again, as long as you understand what went wrong, really, and that you've worked through what went wrong and what led to the breakdown in the first place. If you imagine putting a marriage back together on the brink of breaking up, you wouldn't ever imagine that if it all stayed the same, it would be fine. And I think it's the same with family relationships, that if something has got to the brink of falling apart or it has fallen apart and you've got the opportunity for it to be together again, then it's about really knowing and being mindful of what made it break in the first place and what pushed it to the edge. And moving forward in a different incarnation of that relationship. Too often people refuse to change and just think that one person should change and it will be fine. But actually, when we're in a reconciliation process, it is about everybody doing their bit and about everybody changing together. That is the new incarnation of the relationship, is that the dynamic's different and that everybody responds differently. We're talking about a year now since I started to reconnect with my daughters. At the beginning of the reconnection, I realized that I myself was, to an extent, keeping the children at a distance. You know, it's, it's quite counterintuitive. You're desperate to get over the estrangement. You're doing everything you can to try and get your children back into your life again. Then you get them back into your life and you start to keep them at a distance because you realize how easy it would be for them to do the same again. But that's just, I think in the end, that's a, that's a defense mechanism. I think you just have to be patient with your children and you have to be patient with yourself as well. You have to give, your, you have to give the kids time and you have to give yourself time as well. In the reconnection period, you become obsessed with every little sign from the children. You're worried if they don't respond to your messages. You're worried about how they do respond to your messages. You keep reading so much into every interaction with the children, but you're just not the centerpiece of your children's lives. You've learned essentially what some people might say coping mechanisms. Yeah. Of, of staying calm and not jumping to scanning everything, as you said. Especially right at the beginning of the estrangement, you're sort of navigating in completely foreign territory. You're in a situation that you never, ever thought could possibly happen. 
you go from a relationship with your kids that you think is so powerful that nothing could ever affect it really they couldn't possibly cut you out of their lives then they do it and they seem to do it with ease they can get on perfectly well without you and, and you just don't understand it yeah and i think that dr joshua coleman should be the first part of call for people listening who are in this position because he gives excellent advice and is an expert in this area of parental child estrangement and many of the things that i'm saying i've borrowed from him so i think he's um he's definitely the source to go to here i read books like joshua coleman's book when parents hurt and a pamphlet by sharon waters estrangement of parents by their adult children I used the standalone website. You know, I read the documents that were there, available there. One resource that I continue to find so helpful was I put myself on Joshua Coleman's mailing list. Sometimes you read his emails and it's as if he's describing your own personal situation. So sport for me was probably one of the things that, that helped more than anything else. Going for a good run, playing a game of squash, or climbing with my climbing buddy. One thing that I am very thankful for was that I had given up drinking a few years before I separated, so quite a while before the estrangement. Given how miserable I was, especially the first years of the estrangement, had I been drinking, I suspect that I would have really used alcohol as a crutch to sort of try and help me through I absolutely do not think it would have helped so I'm very thankful that I didn't allow myself that way of trying to cope with the estrangement. Okay so I'm speaking as a teetotaler so I completely (laughs) understand David's point of view I think that yeah alcohol can be really really damaging on a number of levels as much as it is also very pleasurable you know when you stop using it to separate yourself from your pain which I think is what I did and what a lot of people do, use it to numb the pain, you begin to be able to work through things a lot more clearly and you feel a lot healthier and a lot more able to deal with life. And these situations are really complex, like really difficult life situations. And so drinking yourself through a really complex life situation is going to take its toll on your body, on your mind and on the relationships too. Because we, when we lose our inhibitions too, I think we often can reach out without the necessary care and attention that perhaps we should pay. It feels like they've abandoned you. They've taken sides. They won't even listen to what you have to say. It feels terribly unfair, terribly. There's an assumption because I left my partner that the day you, you take the decision that you're happy afterwards... I was in bits after I left my wife as well. I desperately needed support as well, but there was just none from my children. So I think it can be really, really hard to stop people from taking sides. And it can be really easy to perceive that they have taken sides when they haven't too. It's really worth understanding that family estrangement, the literature suggests it's going to impact the whole family. And so people have to reform relationships around the estrangement and that can be very very hard for people because they may feel they have to take sides or they may be pressured to take sides 
it's really hard to control what somebody else is thinking and feeling. And I think that's just something you can't do. And I think all you can really control is your response to those people as and when they do what they do and understand them in their own context, that they're in a difficult situation and that maybe you expected more for them, but maybe they couldn't give it at that time. It's really, really tough because at certain moments you do want people in your family to stand by you or you really would wish that their responses were very different. But I think it is just worth considering that people don't often take sides consciously, that sometimes people fall into sides and sometimes the whole thing is just so difficult that people distance everybody. I'm sure it came across as as defensive perhaps from my side my children described some of my messages as passive aggressive Uh, but you're trying to defend yourself really against what you think is just completely unfair You, you you cannot understand how they can be so unreasonable and not even try you know that's what can be so hurtful they appear not even to be trying to see your point of view I suppose how I approached looking to reconnect with the children, because I felt that I was changing the way I wanted to live my life, seeing the therapist and working through the therapy, I was determined that any relationship that I would have in the future, if I managed to reconnect to the children, would be an authentic relationship, that it wouldn't be a relationship based on a false narrative or based on rules imposed by the children's mother, if I was going to be able to reconnect with them, it had to be an honest, open relationship with them. You do really feel that as the connection is remade, it is extremely, extremely delicate and that you're sort of navigating territory that just feels a bit like a minefield. You're, you're delicately tiptoeing through a minefield, hoping not to set anything off. It's been a year now since I, the reconnection started with my daughters. That feeling is easing. I'm trying to be delicate, but true to how I feel about the relationship with the children at the same time. You are... For me, one of the few people that I've spoken to so far who've managed to reconnect, regardless of how delicate that relationship continues to be, that contrast between those first four years and then this past year. I will never know really until I get to the stage where I can explore these issues with the girls, if ever, or if ever it's necessary. You know, you don't want the rest of your life to be a therapy session. Of course, there are some things you just have to let go. And unless your child wants to explore it with you, there's no need really to keep coming back to the sort of difficult issues. Just enjoy the fact that they're back in your lives and and try and make the time you spend with them as rich and as rewarding as possible for both of you. And I think this definitely helped with my reconnection with the girls. If your estrangement is based on a divorce or a separation, I studiously avoided any criticism of my ex-wife. And to this day, you know, because you're in a situation and you're the person that has created the situation, it takes a bit of the sting out of the situation if you're not participating in a sort of a criticism, a diatribe about the other person. 
It's very difficult not to sometimes when the children are being bombarded by criticism of you. But I think in the end, the sort of basis for a future relationship that I wanted with the children was one of uh, sort of honesty and clarity with them. I think it's unhealthy for you and it's unhealthy for the children. I think when you're reconnecting, you have to reach a balance between not insisting on rewriting an incorrect narrative, but on the other hand, not allowing your children to insist that something that is untrue is true. I was determined that any future relationship with the children would be on a truthful, solid basis. And if you accept a false narrative just to reconnect with your children, that is not building a solid way forward. It is only useful if you're extremely honest with each other. So that for me is a sort of a golden light. And I still keep that in mind in every conversation I have with the children. On reflection, Jay, I, I know that my insistence on an honest relationship going forward with the children has probably prolonged the estrangement. You know, if you're in a situation where perhaps your ex-partner is trying to control the situation, you know, if you let them control the situation, in all probability, you may reconnect quicker. You may end up with your children back in your life sooner than you would otherwise. But for me, what I had to do was ask myself, is that what I want from a relationship with my children for the rest of my life? Just because I had reconnected with the girls, with my daughters, doesn't mean that I have stopped trying to, to reconnect with my son. Because of the sort of regular uh, emails from the mailing list uh, from, from Dr. Coleman, I thought I will have one last go at apologizing, at writing him an amends letter. You know, how I could give him an apology that if he wanted to, he could consider it apologizing for everything that I know about, don't know about. I said to him that I profoundly apologized for any hurt and upset that any of my actions and decisions caused him. You know, that, that's not the exact wording I used. It was phrased a bit better. But I, I was 100% sincere because... Although I would never apologize for leaving his mother, I certainly feel profoundly sorry for all the hurt that my leaving his mother caused him. He came back to me and told me that that wasn't the apology that he was looking for, for hiding the fact from him that I was seeing somebody else before I left their mother. It would have been easy to write to him and say, yes, I'm sorry for that. But one of the bases for the way I want to live now, for how I see my relationship with my children going forward, is that the relationship with them is authentic. And that means that if I'm going to apologize to my son for something that I know I would never do, I would never talk to my son about an extramarital relationship before I had discussed the issue with his mother. It's just, for me, it was just nonsense. So for me to apologize for that with my son, if he decided to reconnect based on that, it would, for me, be a reconnection that was based on a false premise. It just wouldn't be authentic.
I think apologies is such an interesting topic and something that we really don't know enough about and how to do them well enough, I think. So writing a really sincere apology letter can go such a long way for somebody. Any relationship that's become ruptured, be it a partner or a parent or a child or anybody, if if you are able to show that you can own your mistakes and own what you feel you did wrong in that relationship I think it is really fertile ground for reconciliation and fertile ground for showing that I'm in a different stage of my life now that I can move forward and move through with things there's a great book which I'll put in the show notes about apologizing we are particularly poor at apologizing in western society and we always say I'm really sorry but or I'm sorry that you feel this way and Often we're not really owning what we're apologising for. We're actually just saying, I'm sorry that you've reacted in that way to what I've done. And so I think it's really worth doing a good apology, which is just, I'm sorry I did that. And really owning the action rather than saying, I'm sorry you feel a certain way or I'm sorry that you've reacted in that sense. It's really important to apologise well if you want to apologise. And actually an apology where you apologise shoddily can go a long way to making more damage in a relationship. I'm assuming you know the term non-apology. No, I don't. What's that? It's like that kind of apology that you're talking about, where it's like, I'm sorry, but this is why I did it. And I'm sorry that you feel this way. It's passing on the apology. A non-apology. Yeah, I I like that. I mean, it's just so infuriating. I don't know if you've ever received a non-apology, but they are the most infuriating (laughs) things to get. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. I've also given them as well, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course. Before I'd read this, um, how not to apologize book, and I definitely did them because I think culturally that is just how we've apologized, mm-hmm. you know. But if we can really truly own our part in something and really grapple with that and sit with that and say, no, I really screwed that up, or in that argument I said something which was awful and really hurtful for you and I know that and I'm sorry it's very very hard to come back and you know it diffuses things a lot more quickly a year ago he asked out of the blue if I would help him financially with doing a master's degree of course I you know I gave it a fair bit of thought I questioned whether I was just being silly you know under the circumstances helping him but reflecting, I, I thought, how do I want to look back on this situation in 10 years' time? And of course, um, of course, the answer for me was... Uh, the answer was quite clearly that I would like to look back at this moment and know that that I had done what I what I think is the right thing. And that was, of course, helping him out. As we got to the end of the period of the, the sort of years uh, master's degree, I fully anticipated him going completely silent again. And that is what has actually happened. He has gone back to, to sort of complete radio silence. But that doesn't change anything uh, for me. I, I'm still very happy 
um, I did. And, and I will remain happy that I did, for sure. I think as much as we've talked about family being materially supportive and financially supportive, ultimately they're about love and affection and about belonging and people forge a sense of identity and trust in those family networks. Financial aspects of that, I often hear people say, well, I put a roof over their head and so that should be enough. Or... I gave so-and-so huge amounts of money to do this and now they won't speak to me. And in some ways I do really sympathise because obviously it does feel like you have sacrificed a lot by giving financially to your child or your parent or your sister or your niece or your cousin. But I think there's no replacement for the emotional connection and the emotional bonds in family relationships. If that emotional relationship is fractured, no amount of gift giving, no amount of money, no amount of material support is really going to speak through that that rupture. Something like funding a master's course or doing, you know, something much, much bigger in terms of a gift is quite different. A gift like that is a gift, it's giving. And I don't suppose we really should be giving in order to receive. Then I think in many ways, then David sounds like he's quite enlightened about that, that he understands that when he gives, it's about him giving that money and that he doesn't expect something in return. And in many ways, I think like for your own well-being, that's the most positive way to look at it. And especially the idea that he was looking at how he would perceive it in the future. And he didn't want to look back on the situation and regret not doing the right thing for somebody. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about, it's all a personal decision. And it's all about what you ultimately will reckon with yourself in five years, never mind 20 or 30 years. And I think it depends to an extent how much you've given up on the relationship. Because if you've truly given up and you don't think there's any hope of reconciliation and that person is 100% out of your life, then people probably wouldn't financially support someone in that situation. However, if there is a hope of reconciliation and there's some way that you do want to have a better future with that person and you think that could be on the horizon after a number of years, then that obviously is a way to look at it, that this is about an investment in our future relationship and not the present one. There's one piece of advice that I think could be very useful, and that is advice around making unannounced visits to your estranged children. Now, I did this. I booked a flight to the UK and I went to visit my elder daughter. I turned up unannounced at her house. She allowed me in. But the situation turned into an unmitigated disaster. Unbeknownst to me, my my son was also in the house, in my daughter's house. Now, this was before I reconnected with my daughters. So I was still in the middle of the estrangement with all of my children at this stage. So they allowed me into the house and things very quickly got quite upset a berating match. You know, the children were being quite insulting. I was still determined not to enter into criticism of my ex. And in those circumstances, all it would have done was inflame the situation, for sure. I was an emotional wreck at that stage anyway because of the estrangement. My elder daughter interpreted it as a sort of a power play from me 
trying to force my way into her life when the reality of the situation was I was just desperate to see her. After sort of an hour of, you couldn't really describe it other way than abuse from both my children, I said, okay, enough's enough. I realize I've made a mistake. I'm going to leave. My son actually blocked the door. He's a big guy, my son. So I was sat and I listened to Evermore until finally they were exhausted and I, and I left. It was a, an emotionally devastating experience. And of course, I have read the advice again from, uh, from Dr. Coleman to not do it. And he's recently given that advice again. He says it rarely, it rarely works. It's rarely positive. And I can only, my personal experience is that I can only confirm, you know, my intentions were good, but it was inappropriate. It was a mistake. And I would, I would definitely recommend not to do that. In terms of that, I think that's just a simple boundary violation, if anything. Turning up to somebody's house who you know, you know, when you know you're not welcome, it's a massive risk for both parties, really, isn't it? It's a massive risk for David's mental health and what happens if he was, as happened, rejected. And also, really isn't going to stand the relationship in good stead because it's quite confrontational to say I know you don't want to see me but I'm going to see you anyway you know what what kind of message does that really give and I think it can be similar with gift giving that if somebody doesn't want a gift and somebody has said they don't want to hear from you like with cards and presents on birthdays and festive times of the year and thanksgiving and you know there's a whole myriad in the calendar isn't there of times when we send things then actually sending something when you know it's unwanted can actually be a lot more damaging. It's fine to keep the door open and doing it as simply as possible is absolutely fine. Like I think sending cards is one thing, but people sending huge grand gestures, yeah, it can be very, very complex and difficult and not received in the spirit it was intended, ultimately. So the received message that... David thinks occurred there is that they saw it as a power play and he was trying to put them into a position where they had no option but to talk to him and that was where the mm. where the struggle was well yeah again I think that's about boundaries isn't it it's like here's my boundary I don't want to see you and somebody saying I don't care about that boundary I'm going to see you anyway whatever happens and for whatever other reasons lie behind all that be as valid as they might be that's never going to feel good because that's someone's boundary and that's what someone said they want and what they need from you to just go against that and counter to that isn't always going to work out the way that it might seem <laughs> I think and so I think treading carefully is really really important like a, a way that David could have done it could have been I know you're having a gathering this weekend. I would really like to come. Would it be possible to come for just half an hour or an hour to see you guys? If not, I don't mind. I won't come. But allow the ball to be, you know, sensitively in somebody else's court to tell you what they need and want rather than just say, I'm going to do this anyway and I don't care what you think and here I am. Now you're going to love me. You as the estranged parent, you spend hours of every day reasoning these things, working on scenarios, you know, trying to figure it all out in your head, why it's happening, why your children are thinking the way they are thinking. But in the end, you have no idea what your children are thinking. You have no idea 
how they view the situation. The worst thing you can do is actually sort of bludgeon your way into their life. They've made it quite clear that they're not ready to have you in their lives. And as hurtful as that is, not respecting that, an unannounced visit is the exact opposite of a helpful thing. If I had any idea on how hurtful I would have found the experience personally, I never would have done it. I would definitely suggest thinking long and hard before you decide to do that. It's interesting though, I mean, in cinema, in film, that's like the heroic thing to do, isn't it? To to say, no, I'm going to show them just how much I care and how, how much I want to be in their lives. And that might be the perceived narrative of what you should do in that situation yeah. if you go by films. Yeah, that's very true. You know, we have this sort of idealised image of what families are about, but uh, I've just finished watching Fleabag, uh, a British TV series, and I, I suspect that that's much more realistic about, <laughs> about family dynamics than most of the sort of Hollywood type of dynamic. It seems so simple, the idea of turning up. You imagine that you will arrive on the doorstep, your child will see you, and all the love that you have felt for each other up until then will just boil over and, you know, you'll throw your arms around each other and it'll be perfect. But there's too much anger and hurt and distance. You know, that's, I think that's a key factor. As the estrangement develops, it's almost as if the sort of Grand Canyon is opening up between you and your child or, or, or children. I had got to the stage with the estrangement where the idea of calling my children was extremely worrying. Even after the beginning of the reconnection with my daughters, I certainly called very little and found telephone conversations quite tense, quite stilted. I, I suppose uh, to an extent I saw calling as just another extension of turning up on the doorstep. Uh, after the reaction when I visited, I, I didn't feel able. The very limited communication was almost all by email, a detached communication. They didn't have to give me an indication that they read it. They replied or didn't reply as they saw fit, quite a sort of a cold method of communication. One of the simple things that really helped me, as soon as I would get into the house, I would turn the television on, just running in the background all the time. And for me, that was, that was really helpful. It made the house feel less empty. It, it felt like a sort of company, you know, even if it's, you know, even if it's just the television on in the background. And to, to this day, I still do that. You know, I, I generally, uh, I would just have the television on. You know, I, I still live alone. So, uh, you know, I've stayed with that sort of simple, uh, just putting the television on all the time. Thank you. What you've been really wonderful for throughout this two hours that we spent together is you've been trickling in pieces of advice as, as you've gone, which I think is really lovely of you. And hopefully there'll be there'll be pieces that whoever listens to this can take away with them. You know, you are, you are allowed to... Uh, your children can, can take themselves out of your life, but they don't have a right to take away your happiness. I think that's it. Uh,
Okay. Thank you for so many times throughout the whole experience that you've tried to be the person doing the right thing, whether that's like not bad-mouthing your partner or whether that's when being asked questions, just being honest about it, even if it's not what people want to hear. You've been clear throughout this that you want to move forward and be the person doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And I know, and I'm hopeful that my my relationship with the children will evolve and deepen, but it will be on a different basis that we had before my separation, before the estrangement, perhaps a more adult basis. You know, my relationship with the children was wonderful before, and I think it can be wonderful again, uh, but it will be different. It will definitely be different than it was before. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Standalone is a really small charity and I started the charity seven years ago and have built it up to what it is now, which is supporting people in six different locations and also running a national campaign for students to get them more support and visibility in their higher education process. We've done a huge amount in such a small time. What we really need to ensure that we are around in the long term and that we can scale properly is more donations from people like you. If you support charities, you'll know that there are bigger charities that ask for donations all the time on TV, on billboards, on the tube, on the bus, and they have really huge campaigns. This is great, but as a small charity, we can't afford those kind of campaigns. So we're asking you, our committed listeners who are impacted by this issue, to support the charity. And if you can set up a monthly donation of just five or ten pounds, it makes a huge difference to what we can do for you. If you go to our Just Giving site, which is www.justgiving.com slash standalone, then you can make a donation, a one-off donation, and also set up a monthly donation if you're able to. Your funds go a really long way to help people with this niche issue. And it means a lot to me as a founder to see other people supporting the charity. A lot of people think that support should just be with them, but we really need everyone to contribute to make sure that this support can scale and grow and reach as many people as possible. Please do consider giving a monthly donation to Standalone or giving us a one-off donation on the Just Giving site. Thank you. we like to finish each episode of the standalone podcast is by giving you a little snippet of the next episode so the next voice that you'll hear is mina she'll be sharing her experience of leaving a really difficult family dynamic behind particularly with her mother who she's now estranged from and as ever if you have any thoughts that you'd like to share with us about this podcast anything that we can do differently to make it as good as possible for you then please do get in touch with us the best way to do so would be via our Twitter, which is at UK Stand Alone. I used to say to friends that whenever I go home, I just revert back to, I would say, my teenage self. But in our culture, it's like <laughs> parents aren't allowed to speak to you like that type, type of thing. And you're never allowed to question it, really. And if you do question it, it's like, oh, who the hell do you think you are? But she was a real bully and always speaking down to me and... Yeah, I would just revert back to this really quiet, 
just half version of myself really every time I would call her I would always have to just check my mental health can I deal with her today because if I can't then I you know would slip into really really dark depression for a few days but her favorite thing to always say to me at every phone call was what did I do to deserve to have a daughter like you you don't know how to love you don't know what love is you and what have I done in my life to deserve somebody like you if you are feeling lower than normal or need immediate support with your well-being please call Samaritans for free on 116123 or make an emergency appointment with your GP. Standalone UK are such a small charity and so they cannot give out individual advice. If you want to talk about the podcast, head online and go to their Twitter page at UK Standalone to join in the discussion. Remember that Standalone has lots of advice on their website as part of their guides. The Standalone podcast was produced by me, Jay Sykes, for Becca Bland of Standalone UK.